described that if you, if you put Clarkston uh, in Porterdale, um, that's, that's the kind of area that I pastored in for eight years, uh, 50 different language groups within five miles of our church. Um, and so uh, this is a conversation that's been near and dear to my heart uh, as I pastored there. And then now moving here, uh, coming back to the south after being raised in Arkansas, um, clearly it's an issue that, that still is on the forefront of, of our minds and our hearts here at First Baptist. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, I just wanted to say I, I, I've met Leonce. This isn't him just coming here. We had um, some good Mexican food at Dontello's. It was good. Uh, I think we talked college football for the first hour, though. Um, he, I'm sorry. He went to the University of Oklahoma, and he played football there. Let's just calm down a little bit. Um, we all despise Alabama, so we are all friends here. Uh, the, um, I just wanted to mention that. It's not that he's just coming in. We have met, as I have with Eric. <laughs> and um, I just... Uh, I wanted to, our first question uh, this afternoon to kind of be um, one about the word racism. We hear that word both on the news, uh, on Facebook. Uh, today, seemingly anyone with uh, social media uh, can tell you what they think about the word racism. Uh, but I just wanted to ask you all very briefly, uh, what do you think, what is racism and how do we identify it both in our churches and in our communities? Um, if you want to give instances uh, for, for all of these believers, brothers and sisters alike, how can you all as pastors um, help them to identify racism and, and also how to address it? And I wanted to go ahead and start with Leonce and Doug, if, if you will. All right. Uh, see how well I trained you. Let's see what happens. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so racism is just really broad. Uh, the thing that comes to mind is for me is really practical. So we live in a somewhat uh, not wanting to offend people's society, somewhat at least. Uh, and so most people don't think that racism exists within their church most of the time. And the thing that we've seen practically tends to what happened um, is that it's not necessarily about the disdain for a particular color of skin on either side. It is a belief, particularly among a majority culture, that their preferences of doing church are the right way of doing things, I think. Uh, that, that's how it seems to show most of the time when, practically speaking, when it, it sees in the church, is that there's this understanding that when you bring together multiple cultures, that someone has to win as opposed to we can't get along in harmony and in unity as image bearers of God who all has a piece of the image of God. And so I think most of the time when you see racism in the church as it actually fleshes itself out, it'll be more on the extent of, well, I just believe that the manner in which we do things is the right way of doing things. And so everyone else should do the way we do things. And that, that, that tends to be where it starts practically for me. Yeah, I'll, I'll piggyback off of that. Um with regard to one word you said, and that is uh, image bearing. So two words, one phrase. And the, the root, so I'll go a little bit more philosophical. The, the root of racism is the belief that my image bearing is superior to your image bearing. If I believe you bear the image of God at all, and that your image bearing is inferior to mine. 
uh, and then those, those thoughts began to take shape in practical and structural ways. So everybody in here, just so we can all be offended at once together, everybody in here is prejudiced. Amen. We all have prejudices. Uh, we all have uh, beliefs about each other's culture that is connected to skin color, that is connected to economics, education, things of that nature. Everybody carries prejudice. Uh, racism is not prejudice. Racism is a belief of inherent superiority. And then being able to take that belief of inherent superiority and either individualize it in a way to subjugate, diminish, uh, or, or, um, or, or uh, minimize someone's personhood, or to take it in a structural way and begin to diminish, subjugate, or minimize someone's personhood. So um, saying that, uh, I'll, I'll grab two, that uh, black people are loud and white people are corny, okay? Those are prejudice statements. Uh, putting into law that African Americans were three-fifths of a person, well, that diminishes their personhood. Uh, are are y'all tracking with me right now? And so race is very hard, actually, to be a racist. <laughs> and, and we need to say that and, and, and address that and deal with that uh, because to be a racist, to actually act on your belief of superiority requires to some degree power uh, and, and being able to either individually enforce that power or institutionally and structurally enforce that power. Jim Crow laws were racist, okay? Uh, um, believing somehow that all black people like chicken is prejudice, okay? Um, uh, uh, the undoing of Reconstruction through the work of the KKK and the conceding to the South of moving the troops out post-Civil War uh, to allow Reconstruction to be undone and to allow some 2,000 black legislators to lose their legislative positions almost all at once is racist, okay? Believing that all white people uh, love apple pie and the Bee Gees is prejudice. And, and understanding those two distinctions is fundamental to this conversation because every one of us has prejudices that we shouldn't have. Those things need to be met with the gospel as well. But when you realize the, the scope and the magnitude of racism, both in an institutional and individualized way, then you'll find more often than not that many of us stand on the same side of the line because we wouldn't, I wouldn't look at this brother and say, I'm inherently superior to you because I'm black. That's racism, okay? Uh, uh, and, and I don't know that you would look at me and say, I'm inherently, not for any other reason, I'm inherently superior to Pastor Leon's simply because I'm white. And my image bearing is superior to his image bearing. In fact, I don't believe he fully bears that image, which goes back to what the three-fifths laws uh, that were in place uh, in the, in the uh, slavery and colonial era of American history. So understanding that distinguishing is probably one of the most important things you will ever do as church leaders because then you know how to actually address when you see racism and when you see prejudice and know the intensity with which to address those things as you parse those things out. Thank you. I've never had really ever given thought to that distinction, so thank you. Pastor Eric, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I would just add that. If you think about racism, 
Racism is encapsulated in, if you think about a capsule, racism is in that capsule. And that capsule has a name, and that name is called enmity. Mm -hmm. It's sin. Mm -hmm. And so in 1965, I went to the first grade. And in 1965, in the rural part of North Carolina, blacks were, blacks didn't go to college. They went to the factory. And that was the culture. And in 1965, when I was in the first grade, schools were still segregated. Mm -hmm. And so we walked to the black school and the buses with the white kids went past us. Mm -hmm. And I didn't quite understand this because you know, I was six years old and, and you know, they would throw things out of the bus and they would, they would call us you know, very bad names. And my father on the weekend would take us to the movies. And I didn't really understand it until later that I was just happy to go see Batman. Mm. But we went through the back door Mm -hmm. And it said, color entrance. That didn't mean much to me at that point because I was happy to go see the Jungle Book. I was just happy as a young child. But I remember that my father worked at this factory and my mom went to pick up his check one day and I was with her. And I heard this man say, the nigger's check isn't going to be given to him today. Mm -hmm. I didn't quite understand that either. But it was through the years growing up in that community and, you know, bad knee, knee surgery, football scholarship gone. Mm -hmm. High-risk kid, me, ended up in the U.S. Air Force. Went to college a few years, but didn't finish. But went to the Air Force. And at the Air Force recruiter's office, I took the test. And he said, because I was working at a restaurant as a cook, going to the community college. And he said, would you like to be a cook? And I said to him, I'm cooking now. Why do I want to cook in your man's Air Force? Uh -huh. I took your test and qualified for any job you have in the Air Force, anyone. He picked up the big book and gave it to me and said, here, pick a job. And through the providence of God, because we, be, we believe that God is, is involved in Zoe, in life, Talk that God is involved in it. And, and so selected a technology job. Didn't really know what avionics, navigational systems, technicians, didn't even know what that word meant, but it sounded pretty cool. And, and so ended up in the technology space. Coming out of that environment of, of intense racism, when we finally went to the white school, I remember it like it was yesterday. The black, they would stop our bus and they would pull the big kids off the bus and they would beat them. I didn't tell you this. And then when we got to school, they would beat us. And I couldn't understand, why are they doing this? I didn't understand at that time that, that it was encapsulated in something called enmity, mm. the sin. Mm -hmm. And only, only through, we'll talk about social gospel in a minute, but it's only through the transformation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that those things change. Amen. Amen. 
because in 1860 there was a war because the gross domestic product in the U.S. was made up of two bits. The first bit was the manufacturing that was in the Northeast. All of the factories were in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. They were not, uh, uh, the, the labor was not supported by slaves, but it was in the South. GDP was driven by free labor, was driven by the slaves. It was an economic issue. And so there was a social movement to change that. But change cannot happen outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so after the years ended up in doing mergers and acquisitions for AT&T, $8 billion deal, the boy that went to the colored restroom, Wharton Business School, number one business school in the country. $800,000 a year in compensation. How did that happen? Hmm. That didn't happen by people trying to make the change themselves because they cannot. Racism is sin. And only God can liberate us from sin. Amen. Amen. And all I want to say on top of that is I, I, I never assume people connect the dots because I don't always connect the dots. So all of that philosophical mumbo jumbo that I talked, pastor just put flesh on it. Your image bearing was inherently less, so surely you couldn't go through that front door, right? And your image bearing was inherently less, so you couldn't go to the school with those kids. And your image brand was inherently less, so surely you couldn't be smart enough to do anything other than cook and to become a top executive at AT&T and to bring in 800. So this is where you see flesh on ideology. There was nothing, there's nothing diminished about this man. He's brilliant, clearly brilliant. But there was both individual and structural, I'll take your word, enmity, sheerly about his image bearing of God that was somehow diminished in a way that he couldn't go through the front door of a restaurant, drink from a certain water fountain. My, my father, you just told my father's story. So my father went to an all black high school, T.A. Levy, graduated there, went into the Air Force, uh, went through the same thing, took a test, became a pharmacist after they tried to make him a cook. I mean, literally the same story. Became an executive at Exxon Chemical uh, and, and tried to pave a better way for me. Uh, but this is, this is race, it wasn't prejudice, that's racism. That is being able to take my belief that Pastor Eric is somehow less and then enforce a way of life on him because of that, both individually and structurally. And I just wanted to make sure that, that no assumptions here, Abby or, or, or you know, um, Pastor Cody, that the dots are connected, that this philosophical ideology of what racism is parsed out even from prejudice, and prejudice is a problem, but the flesh that it takes on, that the black kids will be pulled off to the bus and beaten by the time they finally get to go to the white school for no other reason than that of being black children. Uh, and that enmity, that sin, as he just said, can only be transformed 
by the gospel. And I'll get into that a little bit as well. Um, but let's not uh, um, forget that though laws cannot transform a heart, it can protect me from the heartless. That was Dr. King's words. And so though the gospel is the only thing that can transform a heart, we still need to address the structural implications of those untransformed hearts because several untransformed hearts together can create an entire web, a net, a system that reflects the nature of their enmity and their untransformed hearts. All right, Leon, so let me, let me play devil's advocate. Please. Because I'm white, and so I... You don't say. I swam, I, <laughs> you remember when you, we had Mexican food? Yeah. We had Mexican food, and I said, uh, I like Mexican. You're like, you're Mexican. And I went, no, 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 I said, I like Mexican. Oh, oh okay, got you. <laughs> um, the... Uh, and like, for example, you and I, you lived, you grew up there. I lived in Baton Rouge. You grew up in Baton Rouge. Mm -hmm. I lived in David Duke's hometown. Yes, she did. With two black babies. Uh-huh. And I remember people complaining about getting off on Martin Luther King Day. Uh-huh. That's the first time in my life I ever heard somebody complain about getting off work. And I kind of wondered, hmm, that's weird. And so let me, let me ask you this. If somebody's got their theology right, because I've heard this before, and I know you have as well. If someone's got their theology right, and they understand the Bible, and they understand doctrine, they know that black people and white people are equally sinful apart from the grace of God. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, you know, some people might be sitting here today going, I just felt like it was awful one-sided when I showed up. Aren't we all sinners? And they say, why, why was so much focused on black oppression, not white, why, why not white racism, why not black racism? Why, you and I kind of talked about this. Mm -hmm. Talk about and try to explain to us, especially white hearers, but black as well, how the sinful nature we all have, all being sons and daughters of Adam, can be equal and symmetrical, but yet the racist institutions and structures can be very asymmetrical. Yeah. Uh, the key word there is power. Uh, that's the key word. It's power. Um, so if we parse race, and so I said this, prejudice and racism are two different things. It's black, my, listen, my grandmother was prejudiced. My grandmother said to me one time, you can bring any girl in here you want to, but don't you bring no white girl home. That's what she said. Now, when she died, my wedding photo was the only photo on her nightstand. Something in her relationship with my wife was transformative. My, my wife is white and Portuguese, by the way. Um, so black folks can be prejudiced. There are few, I've met a handful, I'll say this anecdotally, a few black people that believe that they are inherently superior to white people just by virtue of being black. There are a handful in this world that I've met. By the definition, that would be racism. But the differentiator is power. And for 400 plus years, no matter the nature of, of sinful enmity that black people may have felt toward white people, they have had very little individual or institutional ability 
to alter the reality of the white people around them. That is the distinguisher. And that is why it feels one-sided. Because when you go back through American history, the, the, the glorious hypocrisy of what it means to be America. Our founding documents written in 1776 says that all men are created equal. We gotta keep that statement true. And so these people that we have stolen from the continent of Africa, which the Bible specifically speaks against man stealing in the Old Testament, so we can get into Doug Wilson's terrible arguments about slavery another time. Um, but um, we gotta keep this statement true. So now these people, well, they're not fully human. And so if we declare them not fully human, well, then we can maintain that all men are created equal. So power is a differentiator. From the day this nation was founded, it was founded in the midst of a theological, philosophical, intellectual hypocrisy. Because the American settlers were fighting for freedom from England while holding other people in bondage. Um, a couple of weeks ago, a statement was made about Haitians and Haiti and things of that nature, and I won't go down the political rabbit trail, but here's some history for you. Thousands of Haitians came to this country and fought for America in the Revolutionary War as free people, even though they weren't considered full people. And so the, the one-sidedness of this conversation is caught in the arc of history in which we find ourselves. So let me, let me push back into that devil's advocacy. If this was in the era of history where Egypt ruled the world, uh, or the era of history where Cush ruled the world, and Hannibal, the, the great African king, ruled the world, uh, and Europeans were subject to his power, then the conversation would be one-sided in the other direction. But in this arc of history, for the last nearly five, 600 years, um, Anglo-Saxons primarily have been in power in the world and they've been able to enforce their beliefs about other peoples through that power. And, I mean, this is, this is days worth of conversation, but even the word white, oh, man. that's a social construct. Before you were white, you were Dutch, you were Irish, you were Welsh, you were Scotch. Uh, you, you were a people from a land and a place and whiteness was invented as a coalescing device uh, to maintain power here in the United States. The first slaves here, for instance, blew Piper's mind with this. I was blown away that Dr. John Piper didn't know this. Are you saying you blew John Piper's mind? I did, twice, <laughs> in one conversation. Um, I was there, it's true. <laughs> I gotta hear this. Who were the first slaves on this continent? Does anybody know? Anybody know, did I hear? Irish? The Irish. 500, you know? Well done. Well, well done, I see you. Listen, hey, hey. If he ain't Irish. If he ain't Irish or Scottish, I ain't never seen one. So, so we're related because, because I am Irish, native, and African. 500,000 Irish were the first slaves on this continent. 500,000. And so this is a much more complex conversation than just skin color because it's been about economics and it's been about power 
more than it has ever been about skin color. But skin color became the dominant aspect of this conversation because the black skin marked us from everybody else. And so when the Irish escaped continually, where they escaped to, Dr. McNutt, you know, into Appalachia, mm-hmm. which is populated almost primarily by Irish immigrants for generations now, that was too difficult to maintain. So then they tried to enslave who? Somebody else said it, the indigenous. But they fought to the last man. Fought to the last man. And so then they saw this great idea from the Spaniards and from the Dutch that if we take these people from their homeland, separate them from their ethno-linguistic base and know that they are distinguished, distinguished by a milliliter more of melanin underneath their DNA because we're all 99.9% the same. I hope you know that. Um, Then they can't run, they can't organize because they can't speak the same language, they're from different tribes. Uh, And they can't hide because their skin distinguishes them from us. And that was the beginning of the transatlantic chattel slavery uh, institution that built our country. And so, To go back to the original question, the one-sidedness is because of the arc of history. The one-sidedness is because of the nature of power. The one-sidedness of it is because for 500 years, those who are deemed white at different degrees, at different stages, at different levels, again, just a little side street here, uh, the Electoral College was not invented to keep me from voting. The Electoral College was invented to keep non-land-owning white people from voting. I do know that. So that had nothing to do with race. That had everything to do with economics, and please say the word with me again, power. And then when the threat of civil war came and the threat of a shift in the legislature came, well, no, now we got to let all these people who look like us vote. So, you know, if you get behind us in this movement, even though you don't own land, you can vote now too. Keep the South in power. And so whiteness has been granted and deemed at levels over the last several generations. And that is what distinguishes it. I I don't disagree with the power uh, argument uh, or that thesis. I do not disagree with it. Nevertheless, from, from a macro view, we see power embedded in people. Mm-hmm. Because people make the change. Correct. That's why any change has to be driven from a spiritual standpoint. But the people have the power. They, they have the hands and they have the mouths. But from a micro view, power, that deutimous power, is embedded in the gospel. Do you remember, they went to Egypt. They were there for 400 years. They were under a pharaoh. We all know this story from Sunday school. He was was the known God. Moses said, after 400 years of slavery, let my people go. Facts. But sin says no. Because that was, remember, that was the gross domestic product. That's right. Okay? 
That was the economic engine. Are you kidding me? I'm going to let all my factory workers go. I'm going to let my whole economic system collapse. Not going to happen. Not today. And so it takes the power of God Amen. to change. Everything else is futile. Are you tracking with me? Amen. Thank you, Pastor. It just occurred to me that I left my middle school job making 40000 a year to become a church planner, and you left your $800,000 job to become a church planner. I, piggybacking on the power of God, someone's got to bring a man to leave an $800,000 job to serve in a very unsexy job. Uh, praise God for his community. I, the reason I wanted Eric to be here is Leonce is from, and pastors in Atlanta, Eric's church, if you all don't know, is over here in Emmanuel. It's, in, it's technically in Conyers, is it not, yes. Eric? And uh, Josh goes there, um, and uh, I'm thankful for his, uh, his service to our community. I think here, just in case I didn't say, we have someone, we have a pastor from Covington, pastor from Atlanta, pastor from Conyers, a pastor from Oxford here. That's why we thought it'd be a well-rounded um, discussion. My second, and maybe our last, because we, we love to talk. Well, you asked, what is racism, man? Well, hey, I know, I know. <laughs> Where did you think that was going to go? Um, well, hey, we got to get, we got to, we got to, somebody's got to point to the elephant in the room. Uh, the second question is the social gospel. We hear it. If you haven't heard it, you'll have a, an opportunity here in a short bit to hear what it is, but that term gets thrown around a lot. Uh, what is the social gospel? And uh, just in case anyone didn't know what it is or whatnot, I wanted to kind of defer to uh, Dr. Cody McNutt, my boss. Um, Cody, could you kind of give us a background and some definition, kind of flesh out what is the social gospel? I think it's just, it's just like anything else, whether it's the term racism or whether it's the term gospel-centered or we don't always mean the same thing when we hear terms. Uh, and so a lot of times in our day, the words social gospel or social justice will be conflated together without any historical context, without any understanding of what the social gospel meant 150 years ago when really the, the, the movement, uh, so to speak, began. And so just a very, very brief word on historical context. Um, 1870, post-Civil War, really to 1920, 1930, um, into the era of the Depression and, uh, and World War I. Um, the social gospel was a movement that, that came to be loosely defined by men like uh, Washington Gladden and Walter Rauschenbusch, uh, men like Shaler Matthews. And as simply as I can put it, the, these were men that were looking at issues of poverty and unequal distribution of wealth, organized labor, um, all of these economic and social issues, and, and really we're asking the question, why, why aren't Christians, why isn't the church mm -hmm. doing more to address those things? Um, love God, Pastor Abby's written on the social gospel, love God, love neighbor, and, and really they went to the second piece first, uh, that the gospel is all about loving neighbor, meeting needs, um, and it, it really, to some degree, began to preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words, mm. uh, which is a 
terrible, terrible state saying. And a misquote. Um, you, you, can, you cannot <laughs> preach the gospel without using words that are Amen. actually about the actual gospel. And you can't live the gospel. Uh, the gospel is the truth about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and how it frees us from our sin. Amen. And so that, that movement uh, really was picked up on even later in the 20th century by people like Martin Luther King. Um, with the with the civil rights era, this the social language of it, uh, and it it became a movement that even in these last decades has misdefined the kingdom of God as meeting community and social needs first, uh, without and often at the expense of doctrinal fidelity, mm. doctrinal integrity. Uh, and so we, we, we do not believe that theology, uh, that orthodoxy and orthopraxy, um, they're not opponents of each other. They, they must always go together. Uh, and that's when we use the term social justice in our day, we often think young leaders and millennials and young evangelicals yeah. want to talk about social justice and they want to talk about um, so-called same-sex marriage or abortion or whatever the social issues are of the day without understanding that historical context and without understanding uh, the root of all of it, which is the sinfulness in our own heart and how we can't police, we can't legislate transformation of society and the bringing in of the kingdom of God, uh, only the power of the gospel through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as applied by the Holy Spirit can make that transformation happen. Amen. Um, I like what uh, Cody said about the kingdom of God. Rauschenbusch was fixed on that theme. Uh, he just seriously misunderstood it. Um, and I, I, matter of fact, I was uh, looking with Cody at that at an article where uh, Dr. King actually distances himself from the father of the social gospel. He said he's just misunderstanding what the kingdom of God is. It was just profound because I had never read where Dr. King interacted with Rauschenbusch. Uh, but Dr. King empathized with him and said the guy's the guy is ministering in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, no wonder he sees the social ills. Um, and so I like that you said that. Also, I like that Cody mentioned words. How I mean, today words matter. Mm. Do they not? I mean, I'm just the word tweet. When you tweet something, it's out there. I mean, I I'd learned that from my high school uh, youth pastor days. Um, but words today, evangelical or social gospel, racism, how important it is to define what we mean. Uh, and I think I just wanted to, I wanted to emphasize that before, uh, before Pastor Eric piggybacks because words matter. And most importantly, when dealing with people of other skin color, other races, um, our words can build up and they can tear down as well. Pa uh, Pastor Eric, did you have anything to piggyback as far as social gospel and how we understand that? Yeah, I have, <laughs> have some, some fairly strong... Uh, Speak it, brother. Yeah. I, um, I have a lot of energy with this one because you know, I was listening to our speaker earlier, and, and he said something. He said, white people 
must own and fix the issue. Work to fix the problem. And, you know, if you determine the root cause analysis, and we've kind of talked about that, right? That's, that's sin. And the social gospel, not every element of it, so I don't want you to misquote me when I say that certain elements of the social gospel are evil. And the reason I say that is because in many cases, it's a camouflage. It's a camouflage of the gospel. And when there is an event that occurs in the U.S., an event that can be leveraged by certain practitioners of the social gospel, hands up, right? And so when all of that was happening in St. Louis, we were in the midst of Humanity Community Church, we were in the midst of recruiting a youth pastor. And we're blessed because we're able to recruit, staff, hire, full-time guy to pastor to students. And, and, and so we're going to some of these larger churches in the Atlanta area looking for ready-now candidates that can step into a youth pastor job in an African-American context. But where are those people going to come from? Those first-round draft picks are going to come from, you would think, they're going to come from these larger churches. Think about the larger churches being the SEC, the, uh, uh, yeah. You can go Big 12. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe not Big 12, but, you know, they're coming from the SEC. Mm. That's where they're coming from, right? Why are you trying mm. to pick fights, man? Right? You know, 10% of, of the draft picks mm. in the U.S. or in the NFL will come from those schools. That's just the fact, right? So that's where they're going to come from. So we went to some of these larger churches looking for these guys, and we interviewed them. And I asked each one of them, because all this, this St. Louis business was on the news all, all day, and I asked each one of them, what will you... What would you tell our students about what's happening with this Rodney King business? Each one of them immediately went to the social gospel as the change agent. I didn't hear one of them say, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to introduce the gospel of Jesus Christ as the change agent because I understand that 80% or 70% of these black babies that are being born out of these unwed environments, I grew up in that. I know all about that. And if the gospel isn't in those homes, what's going to change? And when these kids grow up, what do we expect for them to do? How will they behave? Is it a cop problem or is it a sin problem? What's the problem? And so will the social gospel affect the behavior? My argument is it cannot because the transaction is spiritual. And you can't take a non-spiritual legislation to affect the heart, which can only be changed spiritually because it's a spiritual transaction. Are you with me? Now, true enough, believers will be elected and believers can influence the laws and legislation that we are governed by. That must happen. You must be engaged in that process. 
But it is not, it is not the social uprising that's going to change within itself. Remember, that was born out of 1860s. The North didn't want slavery, but the South did. And so there was a, there was a, so, there was a social shift, social shift in our society. And, and so the social gospel is, in many cases, a camouflage. Satan will use any element to derail our visuals to Jesus Christ. He, he will use it. So, I, you know, I, 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 I've lived it. I understand it. And, and, and I'm a practitioner. I'm on, I'm on the application side. May not be popular. Amen. Amen. So, two questions for both of you brothers. Do you believe that the gospel has social implications? The gospel, it's good news, right? And, and, and so, it's the good news of Christ that changes the hearts. Even if you have a Confederate flag. I mean, come on, really? So... You're going to take down all the flags? You want to take down all the monuments? Each represents history and experiences of the past mm -hmm. that many cases we've been liberated from. They, they are symbols of freedom. They're symbols of the liberation that Jesus Christ can give to us. Should we get wrapped up in that or should we get wrapped up in, in, in the very single thing that can change the hearts of men and women? Well, to that it, question again, camouflage. Are, are there social implications of the gospel? Of course there are. Okay, that, that, that's what I wanted to make sure. Yeah, that's uh, on the application side. And so too then, if legislation is not a means of change, so I'm gonna play devil's advocate, then, then why are we up in arms about abortion legislation? It, it is and, a means of change. Well, well, so, so, so right now... Pastor, in, can I finish the rest of that question? Yes you, yes, you may. Um, because the, the whole push behind the present administration was we need a conservative justice to eliminate abortion legislation. How is equity for the least of these, because I would, account, I would count unborn among those, but how is the legislation for the least of these with regard to economics, education, race, any less important? And I'm not saying that you're saying that. No. Uh, I'm just trying to make sure I'm hearing exactly what no. you're saying with regard no. to the 70 million the babies gospel. murdered every year. It's murder. Okay. It's it's murder. So how does, how does that get changed? That gets changed by the hearts and minds of people that are in power. They can make those changes legislative. You may not, let's bring this back to Conyers. So you may not know in Conyers today, a church cannot have an after school program, an after school enrichment program for high risk kids did you know that? That the Department of Child Services 
in Georgia, led by Amy Jacobs, which is a 700 million, she has a $700 million budget, and she owns the responsibility of child care in Georgia, appointed by Nathan Deal. Mm -hmm. Did you know in your churches today, you cannot have an after-school program? Did you know? You don't know that. But we're making that change because we elected on, on, on January the 9th, Brian Strickland, who is going to take to the House of Representatives in downtown to either introduce legislation to change that. So it is the people that have changed hearts, that change laws that affect our lives. Okay. It all starts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, then I think we would be saying the same thing, but, but in your original statement, it sounded like you were saying that change hearts is it. That's the only thing. And, so okay, and I, and I just wanted to make sure I heard you no, correctly. No, 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 because Paul talked about the gospel changes, changes the heart. The Greek there is cardia. It's, it's where we get the cardiac, the heart. Mm -hmm. Only the gospel can do that. Correct. And there may be laws that, that may never change that impact us that we say they're wrong. There may not be. Every law may not be changed. But God is still in control regardless of the laws of man that we cannot change. That's all I'm saying. It sounds to me like Eric just emphasized the first 11 verses in Ephesians 2, and Leonce just emphasized the last 10 verses in Ephesians chapter 2. And Colossians 3, there and Galatians go. 2, and First and Second Peter. This is kind of why I paired, this is kind of why I paired these two men because there are two African-American pastors in two very different contexts, but two huge hearts. And uh, I think it helps us understand that black people, you need to understand all white people are very different. And white people, you need to understand black people are very different. Uh, that, that guards us from prejudice. Facts. Uh, and in uh, understanding that everyone is different, but these two men just emphasize Ephesians 2, uh, but we have to understand, yes, it starts with the gospel, uh, but the gospel also takes us places. Verse 16 says that we are, he reconciles us mm -hmm. by the cross. Mm -hmm. And the Greek there for reconcile is not how we think about it in terms of husband and, and wives. When a husband and a wife have an argument, the one that was wrong is waiting on the one, the one that wronged them to say, I'm what? I'm sorry. But that's not how Paul used this word. The way Paul used it is the one that was offended goes to the offender and makes it right. Amen. That is that power of the gospel that changes our hearts. That's why Paul said at the end that we are now, in verse 19, we are now no more strangers and foreigners. Amen. And that we are part of the household of God. And the way he used that word household is, is it, 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 it's, 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 it's our home that we've been adopted into. Mm -hmm. Amen. All right, so we're going to take a five-minute break. Hey, Avi, can we let these guys, before we take a five-minute break, yeah. can we let these two speak uh, about social gospel Yes. Uh, for just a minute. And, and Leon, you may bring some of this out in your sermon. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, for I'll, just a minute. 
I don't have much, much more to say on that. I, I wanted to make sure for my benefit and for their benefit that I understood what Pastor Eric was saying. Um, because what I have historically seen, particularly in evangelicalism, is the gospel, which I believe is a message uh, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus uh, that brings us out of sin in Adam and into righteousness in Christ, a gift of God that we cannot earn, uh, but that even the faith that we have is granted as a gift to us. That is the gospel. Um, but the Bible's very, very clear um, in every letter that Paul wrote uh, in the Old Testament, uh, in Micah 6, 8, in Isaiah 1, 17, um, I, I mean, I go all day, Galatians 2, 14. So that's the best example. Galatians 2, 14. Anybody know the story? Paul is at the church at where? Antioch. And uh, Peter has decided that because other Jews are in town, that he will no longer eat with Gentiles. We will call that what? At least prejudice, but probably racism because Peter really did believe he was superior as a Jew. And what are Paul's words there in Galatians 2.14? That you are out of step with what? Good taste, um, proper etiquette, social standing, no. His exact words were, you are out of step with the gospel, with the gospel. And so my fear sometimes in these conversations, because I don't think Pastor Eric and I are, are that far apart on this. My fear though, and, and the way I've seen it leveraged in our church, so you ask for personal stories, is people who say they believe in that transformative message only see it vertically and don't see it horizontally or if they see it horizontally, they only see it individually. So I pressed somebody about their, their statements about race and their first answer is, well, I've got a black friend. I've got a white friend. I've got, I've got a Korean friend. And, and they immediately parse their horizontal outworkings of the gospel in individual relationships. And, and that's a very dangerous place to be because individuals who become groups become a collective and collectives who have power influence and influencers with power change laws and laws create systems and systems are those things in which we must exist. And so as much as along with, and Dr. Piper and I had a, a, a very um, fatherly, sonly, intense conversation <laughs> about his book, Bloodlines, uh, along these same lines. That if, if we say that we just gotta see hearts transformed to see these things change, then we fall short of, of, of biblical fidelity in my view and in, in what I think good exegesis produces. Yes, we have to see hearts change. You can go to renovation.com and hear me preach right now. I preach ferociously. Lie, the gospel, okay? every Sunday, but there are implications and outworkings of that gospel. I'll give you another passage. Um, uh, Zacchaeus, he was a wee little man. A wee little man was, look at you, Bible school all your life. <laughs> and when he finally comes down out of the tree and has dinner with Jesus, he tells Jesus, Jesus hasn't spoken yet. He tells Jesus, 
Everything that I've stolen, I've returned. And four times what I've defrauded people, I've given back. And Jesus' response is what? Today, salvation has come to this house. Now, you have two choices. Either Zacchaeus earned his salvation through his works of giving away half his wealth to the poor and paying back four times what he defrauded anybody, or Jesus is saying that there's a reciprocal relationship between a transformed heart and the societal and social and horizontal implications of how that person stewards their life and their wealth and, and their ideology and their laws and, and, and everything that is connected to their personhood. Either those things are connected and they're an outworking of the fact that he is now transformed or he just purchased his salvation through his good works. And that is the very narrow line that we're walking. The social gospel says doing good things is the gospel. That is a lie, that is a heresy, that is a falsehood. The actual gospel says though, that transformed people will do things that reflect kingdom ethics. And they will push for things that reflect kingdom ethics, not only in their individual lives, but in broader society. And that's why I love that Dr. King quote, and I'll say it again. Laws may not change hearts. Fact, they won't. But they may protect me from the heartless. And that is why we fight for abortion legislation because laws are not gonna change the hearts of a woman who is set on aborting her child. And it's not gonna change the heart of a, of a person who is running an abortion clinic. A new law is not gonna change their heart, but we still fight for those laws. Why? Because we wanna protect those children from the heartless. And when we think about all of the other issues in this society that are, are far and, and wide and wrong and broad and legislated, and as you said, laws that are on the books that are just wrong and we know they're wrong. Why would we as transformed people fight any less against those things, not believing that they are the gospel, but because of the gospel? And, and that is the differentiator. Is that, you track with me right now, Pastor? That is a differentiator. I would never tell you that doing good is the gospel. As a matter of fact, I've had people leave our church because we weren't woke enough, okay? Because doing good is not the gospel, but gospel transformed people do good. And, and they fight for the good. And they fight to see the kingdom reflected in the world today. And, and so that is, you know, that is the way that I would separate those two things. Would, yeah, I, I wanna make sure that my message was clear. Transformed people by the gospel, the definite article, the gospel, the good news of Christ, is the only change agent. Only. Amen. That's why and all five that's of not vertical. Here. That's not a vertical view. That's a horizontal view because that view spans across entire life, entire life cycle, entire life people. The gospel. Maybe we're saying the same thing. And I think it's, we are. And that's and, the gospel and, that causes change, not yeah. the other way around. Yes, absolutely. I'm actually glad that they got to see this because if you are like me, this conversation would have ended very quickly 30 minutes ago. <laughs> this is how it happens. Do you see how we just talk through the gospel? You see how we just talk through the implications of the gospel? It's the same gospel, two different ends, same gospel, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, what he just said. 
believing in that message and then living that message. Um, this is how it happens. This is discussion. This is dialogue. We talk about it a lot. Um, but these two gentlemen, well, all five of us, but we just had a 30-minute conversation and we never left the gospel. You see how that works? You watching this is just as important as what they actually said. And I hope you heard what they said. Um, and so I thank you, gentlemen, for this. I, I don't want to cut you off, but we got to, you know, we're, we're pressed for time. So I'm going to give you all about five minutes. Um, if you haven't met some of these guys, come and bug them. Uh, but I'm going to give you five minutes to go to the bathroom, then I'll uh, introduce our speaker for the evening or for the afternoon. For the Sorry. Wasn't meant to be. You got all day, man.